What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Alan Farrington is a former institutional investor and the author of a new book, Bitcoin is Venice. In this conversation, we talk about institutional adoption, the errors of modern economic theory, and why Bitcoin is such an elegant solution to many of the world's problems. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alan, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform, Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is sponsored by Abra. They're based in California, and they're backed by top VC firms. Abra is an all-in-one, simple, secure app that allows you to trade over 110 cryptocurrencies, get 0% interest loans using your crypto as collateral, and earn interest with up to 13% APY on stablecoins and 7.15% APY on Bitcoin. You can join nearly 2 million users by downloading Abra from the Google Play or Apple App Store. If you download the app today, you will get $15 in free crypto once you fund your account. You came, you invested, now conquer. Abra, conquer crypto. Go check it out today. This episode is brought to you by DeFi Technologies. DeFi Technologies represents what's next in the digital economy. They're providing simplified, trusted access to crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. DeFi Technologies is currently listed on the U.S. exchange at DEFTF stock ticker and the Canadian NEO exchange at DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at DeFi.tech. I'm really excited about what these guys are doing. I've become an advisor to the business, and I highly suggest you go check them out. Go to their website at defi.tech today. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Alan Farrington here with me. How are you, man? I'm very well. I'm super excited about this because I feel like you went from zero to like a thousand on the Yeah, end. I kind of cool. feel that way too. It's <laughs> entirely unexpected too. For sure. So you've got a brand new book out that basically looks at all the errors of modern economic theory. So I figured that'd be a good place to start. Yeah, where, sounds good. Uh, I think- there's a whole bunch of people who are wondering what the hell's going on in the world. And <laughs> yeah. uh, it's human nature to look just at right now and forget that there's decisions in the past that led up to today. Uh, so maybe walk us just through, like, what do you assign today's problems to in, from uh, past like, economic theory? <laughs> um, how long do we have? I feel like I should probably just read you the book <laughs> to explain, yeah, how did we end up where we are? Um to be fair, the, what what we go into in the book, I say we, by the way, because I have a co-author, um, uh, Sasha Myers, who will be at the conference. Unfortunately, you couldn't come to this, but we're doing a book signing on the Friday if anyone's interested. So that's just why I keep saying we. Um, we don't, our, our approach isn't really to explain um, kind of the exact point that we are at now. Um, it's not It's not really to like trace history exactly. It's, it's a lot more theoretical than that. Um, what we dig into is some surface level explanation of what we uh, kind of amusingly, sarcastically just call degenerate fiat economics. But it's not so; it's not really an economics. It's certainly not a textbook. It's not really a book about um, you know laying out economic theory as we 
think it should be um, sort of understood or, or taught or whatever. It's almost a step back from that in terms of what ways of thinking about economics are even helpful in the first place. And probably obvious by the title or, you know, anyone who has heard of me before, the conclusion of this is that if you approach it properly and and uh, sort of competently and, and with a with a philosophically coherent outlook, you end up having quite a favorable view of Bitcoin. You, you don't necessarily... I think, conclude that, you know, Bitcoin is the answer to absolutely all of this, but you, you certainly end up having a very favorable view of it relative to the, the fiat alternative. How much of this can just be assigned to like Austrian economics versus Keynesian economic uh, kind of thought processes versus there's more nuance to it than just, hey, there's two completely I, different yeah, schools of thought. I think I think that's a very good start. There is, um, I forget, forget which one, but relatively early on, there's an end note. There's a very, very long end note where we answer exactly this question. And so I think as a starting point, just looking into Austrian economics is is fantastic. Everybody should do that. Everybody should compare their learnings from doing so to what they've, I would imagine, if, unless they've actually you know done studied economics, like an undergraduate degree, for example, probably they've just imbibed from the culture and they'll notice an, a, a massive contrast there. Um, but this, this end note goes into basically a, a whole bunch of other schools that... Uh, don't necessarily contradict Austrianism. I wouldn't put them up as kind of competing schools or anything. They're just, they're as you say, they're nuanced. Yeah, they they flesh it out some more. So for for people who are interested, I would strongly encourage after you've done the kind of core Austrian regimen, I would encourage looking into uh, complexity economics, ergodicity economics, Islamic economics, and actually there's a whole bunch of kind of. I guess you'd call them just heterodox thinkers that quite self-consciously don't place themselves in any particular school. Um, there's a very long list of them that we do cite at various points. My favorite, which I've been kind of banging the drum on for a while, is a guy called Hernando de Soto, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called The Mystery of Capital. Uh, he doesn't, as far as I'm aware, at least he doesn't consider himself a, an Austrian economist at all. Uh, but I think his writing fits not only with the Austrian school very nicely, but it, it has very uh, kind of obvious morals, once again, for, for Bitcoin. It's, it's very useful for explaining some of the things that uh, I would argue Bitcoin fixes. And so when you start to think about some of those uh, kind of Herod Docs uh, type ideas, what are the like main takeaways, right? If somebody's like, mm. hey, look, I don't have uh, a year to go and study all yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's one or two of them that you would kind of put forward as examples of uh, of if you went to go do this work, you'd walk away with? Sure. Um, I'll maybe just pick uh, all of the ones I mentioned. I'll just pick a few and like give a give one of their lessons Perfect. if you like. So the reason that um, complexity economics is is maybe kind of controversial. I don't. I haven't really heard that many people in the Bitcoin sphere talk about this. Um, so I don't know if I am just kind of if there's any uh, inadvertent Bitcoin blasphemy involved here. But the reason that I like complexity economics, I think it actually fits very nicely uh, alongside Austrian economics. I don't think there's there's much of a contradiction. The reason I would say it's controversial, though, it's kind of bizarre that most of the, um, I guess, foremost uh, economists who identify with that school um they, it's not that they, they sort of explicitly dislike Austrianism. It's more that they come to conclusions that I would argue are politically motivated and that don't actually really follow from the economics that they've just done. But the gist of it, and the reason that I like it, is that I think that it's a very nice counterpoint to Austrianism for people who are very uh, either mathematically or kind of mechanically inclined and so one of the, I think this is actually a really good thing about Austrianism, this, this is in no way a, a, a criticism, is that um, you'll you'll hear people who are kind of fans of it. One of the things they tout is that if you go through an Austrian economics like textbook, say, so something that is like really rigorously academic, you'll find next to no equations, right? And this is like a, a, a obvious counterpoint to um, basically all of mainstream. I, I actually don't even really like saying Keynesianism because I think the mainstream goes beyond what would, count as just Keynesian to for that to be all that helpful. Um, it's a good kind of an insult, though. But um, yeah, mainstream economics, equations absolutely all over, all over the place. Austrian, not so much. I think there's potentially a tension there. This is something that I felt, given that my undergrad was in math, um, that 
I, I have some sympathy for people who look at that and, you know, they don't disagree with any of it. They they follow all the reasoning and it's, if anything, it's kind of refreshing that it's like it's just verbal logic and that's great. And they, you know, they follow it, they understand it. I have some sympathy for if they have an instinct that there, there must still be some kind of math behind this, right? It's not just like completely beyond being... Um, I'm really careful exactly what I say here, but like modeled or measured in some way. Like clearly there are numbers involved. Clearly there is causation involved. There must be some way of explaining this that isn't, you know, the the complete farce of, of the math that goes into mainstream. That's where I think complexity is really interesting because the, I, I would argue it, it provides that to some extent, but I think the main thing that it provides is more just kind of, it's more like intellectually satisfying mm-hmm. than necessarily like, oh, here's the explanation of how everything works because the the satisfaction that it gives is in providing mathematical tools that themselves, in my view, more or less prove why you can't know the kinds of things that it's implied in the mathematical modeling of mainstream economics, which is might seem kind of weirdly paradoxical, but it's once you do grasp it, you're like, ah, perfect. There's like, you know, it's it's not just a kind of a philosophical explanation for why, you know, this is basically nonsense because you couldn't possibly know any of the things that are going into this. It's actually more of a mechanical explanation of why you can't know these things. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like, um, that's why I like complexity economics. That's the, the value that I think it brings. What about DeSoto? Uh, so, so he's not, uh, he's certainly not involved in the complexity school. I'm, I'm not really even sure how to place him, uh, to be honest. He was one of the ones I mentioned as just being kind of heterodox. Mm-hmm. So his, his whole, um, spiel, I guess, like the moral of the mystery of capital, um, is it's quite, um, I guess, yeah, philosophical. I'm not sure how else to describe it really. It's, it, it he likes to emphasize, um, actually exploring the reality of institutions in which so-called capitalism is operating. And so what the, without like ruining it necessarily, I mean, most of the mystery of capitalism is, is it's fascinating and it's actual almost journalistic quality and that he and his, his uh, researchers, his, his academic uh, team actually go to many places in the world and do like really rigorous in-depth research of uh, marketplaces for property and capital and so on and the legal regimes around them that that make this point basically beyond what he assumes his readership is going to be really used to in the West. Um, but his argument is that capitalism itself is, it depends on much more than just free markets. And I think I, I completely subscribe to this having you know read that book and thought about it quite a bit. I think that in, in I guess, economic discourse, like popular economic discourse that we are used to, there often is and, and can be, and there's certainly a temptation to conflate the two to just say, okay, you know, if you have free markets, you'll eventually get capitalism or, or, or some, some kind of equivalence. Like, you know, capitalism basically is just what happens when you have free markets. And DeSoto's argument is that free markets are necessary but insufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is definitely, maybe not even in and of itself sufficient, but is necessary in addition to free markets is uh, property rights and not not just property rights, sorry, but because you could kind of argue that that's a feature of free markets in the first place, but um, legible records of property rights that everybody has access to and can understand and over which there's no conflict and which is... Um, which is effectively legally recognized. It's really more a point about legal regimes than about trade. Um, but his point, though, is that if that exists, people can create capital from their assets and then engage in free trade, ultimately, far, far more effectively than without that. And so what he points out in a lot of the places that he goes and looks at is that there's actually like flourishing free trade, but there's almost no wealth creation because people have no access to capital. They have access to goods that they can trade, in many cases entirely extra-legally, but because they're the, the legal system that they're, fo- they're forced to operate under 
precludes them from accumulating capital, there's very little additional wealth that can be created. It's, it's actually, to put it in kind of Bitcoinery terms, it's very difficult to have a low time preference in that environment because, you know, you can, you, you still can even potentially get quite wealthy, right? You can do well with the free trade, but you can't really invest at anywhere near the scale that, you know, would be ideal. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about the idea of property rights, and I think the argument really is uh, his book specifically is why capitalism triumphs in the West and fails everywhere else, right? Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. I forgot the subtitle. Yeah, yeah, and, and so uh, the the whole idea of the free market or, or kind of this capitalistic ideal, uh, it obviously works in the West. Why doesn't it work everywhere else? Mm. And, and ultimately comes down to this idea of property rights, but not just having them, but also everyone else knowing you have yeah. them, who owns yeah. what, right? And so when you start to think about Bitcoin, obviously, uh, is it a fair you know kind of comparison to say that it's essentially a digital version of what he's talking about? Where- oh, I think so. Yeah, I think it, I think that book lends itself very very nicely to Bitcoin. I mean, it doesn't. It's not like the obvious conclusion of it is ah, mm-hmm. oh, well, Bitcoin fixes this. But I think for uh, for the the people who are in exactly the situation that he explores in great depth, what Bitcoin offers is a system, uh, I mean, obviously it, it, it has the same kind of benefits just for trade and for, for money and so on and, you know, uncensorable money. Um, but that's kind of straightforward. I wouldn't expect that to be remotely insightful. What it offers beyond that is exactly such a, almost, it's not even really a legal regime, it's kind of a supra-legal or quasi-legal regime of... Uh, the grounding for capital formation. So it's extending to them this global network of, um, yeah, of, of, in a sense, digital property rights that has all of those characteristics that um, that I mentioned earlier as, as, you know, obviously being ideal and not necessarily present in otherwise failing legal regimes. So, you know, everybody can see that you have it. You can see that you have it. You can transact with it freely, and it can hopefully be a basis for capital formation. Yeah. And it's fascinating, too, to think uh, most of the argument really seems to be you need the local legal structure to be set up in a way in which it then provides that property rights uh, and the readability of the property rights to the citizen. So go to any country around the world to go find that. Uh, it would require the local government to actually put that in place, right? It's not something that mm. uh, the citizens could put together the, the property rights or the legal structure. They need the politicians to do that. With Bitcoin, in some way, uh, it's outside of the system, but it, it uh, assigns that same property right structure. Yeah. Yeah. And in in another way, the people did create this and then exported it globally. Um, yeah. And so it's very unique when you start to view yeah. Bitcoin. It's, not it's as fascinating. A, yeah, it's, it's something that, yeah, they can probably for, for the first time in their experience of acquiring property and trying to accumulate capital, it is a system that they can merely opt into without having to convince anybody, really. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. Sort of, is why I was kind of struggling to even come up with a good adjective to, to describe it as like supra-legal in a sense, is kind of supra-political too, or potentially apolitical. I know that triggers a lot of people saying that, but I, I quite like sticking to, yeah, Bitcoin is apolitical. Yeah. This, I think this is maybe a good example of why though, right? That, um, and a lot of that debate does just come down to semantics ultimately, but I think in this case, it's quite a clear example of at least why the semantics are helpful, even if you don't necessarily agree with that, you know, that approach to labeling things that people in that kind of environment where the the local legal regime is not conducive to capital accumulation, um, they, which is ultimately a political question, they have this alternative that they can opt into completely regardless of what any you know, political pressure is brought to bear. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's fair to call that apolitical. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, another thing that a lot of folks are talking about right now, obviously one is uh, this idea of just like, what is the economic theories that are at play right now? How are people making decisions? Mm. <laughs> and uh, is it good or bad? What are the impacts? Uh, related in some way is all of the ESG stuff that seems yep. to be uh, <laughs> quite popular. And uh, there's, I think, two pieces of the conversation that no one just states out front, which is, uh, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and is like, today's the day I'm going to go destroy the environment, right? <laughs> I think most people generally think that, hey, we should take care of the earth. Yeah. The disagreement yeah. ends up being in, well, what is actually negatively impacting the earth? How do we stop yeah. that? Like, There's a very long passage in the book, by the way, about how probably the best way to actually seriously incentivize protecting the environment 
is to have a low time preference in the first place. So yes, in a very roundabout sense, Bitcoin fixes this, but I mean, Bitcoin fixes everything. So that's, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that it, it's, um, it's interesting because there's obviously an appetite in the institutional world with the media, with, um, you know, people who I, I think are looking to virtue signal, et cetera, around, Hey, I am pro ESG. Right. And, mm. and frankly, half of them probably couldn't even describe what exactly that means. But we've seen studies. I that think they think they're saying that they are moral. Like yes. They're basically it's not even I'm a good person. It's more like I'm not explicitly a bad person. Yes. So one of the most interesting things is there was a study done that basically shows uh, like 70 percent of the funds that they studied uh, changed the language on their websites mm. to be more ESG friendly or specifically reference ESG type uh, initiatives, you know, uh, ethos, et cetera. And then they looked that from when those words got added to the website, did they change the actual contents of their right. portfolio? <laughs> yeah, of course. And of course, majority of them did not, right? So it was like majority of the funds studied mm. actually added ESG type language, but majority of those that added the language didn't actually change anything in their portfolio, which I don't think is necessarily like a huge surprise, but to actually see the data. Uh, and even if you take it with a grain of salt and say, hey, you know, maybe the data is not completely accurate, but directionally, I think it confirms what a lot of people probably would assume. Mm. And so when you start to think about this, how do you look at ESG? You mentioned a little bit of like lower the time preference and that actually would be a more kind of pro-environment type uh, approach. What else on that issue do you feel like is either misplaced or, or people are misunderstanding? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. So I, I have a, a thesis about this, which is I think actually kind of boring in a, in a way. It's sort of, it, it's a good counter to the temptation to view this all as some kind of giant conspiracy or or even I don't think anyone anybody serious is really putting that forward but even as a kind of subversive political tool I certainly see the temptation to see it as a subversive political tool mainly because I think the combination of how vague borderline meaningless a lot of the language actually is versus how it then seems to be implemented in you know, a very, uh, a very similar way all the time towards, you know, very clearly aligned political ends. So I, I do appreciate all of that. I, I'm not even sure I disagree with that. My my thesis, and I think why I am kind of characterizing it as a little bit boring, is where this is even coming from in the first place. I think is nowhere near that exciting and nowhere near that conspiratorial. Where I think it comes from is basically how asset management at a global scale works and the i think this is ultimately just a product of the flaws in that industry i'm wondering if maybe there's a way of spinning this as oh bitcoin fixes this too we can maybe come back to that i'm not sure i don't have a solid like line of reasoning that gets to that point um but i i think that actually probably most people don't really know what or most bitcoiners i would imagine unless they've worked in institutional finance for a long time i would imagine they don't know a lot of this so the vast majority of asset management uh in in all its various guises is remunerated or rather at the kind of the corporate level not the not the personal level the the revenues are a function of the volume of assets managed. And in almost every case, they are far more a function or far more heavily a function of assets under management than on performance. And so this, I mean, this creates all kinds of problems that have nothing to do with ESG, nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's They're more just kind of classic, um, you know, cartel behavior, regulatory capture and so on that the incentive that almost every asset manager faces is basically to be as close to average as possible in terms of the success of doing their own job. And this is where um, this is where index investing comes from. I could have a whole other rant about how ridiculous even the concept of index investing is in terms of thinking about the implications for allocating capital effectively and efficiently. But that's why it exists, because people don't want to it's, it's not that they don't want to not do well, they just don't want to do worse than anybody else because then their assets will be taken away by the underlying clients and then they won't make any money. And if you deviate too much from whatever your perception of the average is, and in many cases, you know, the fact that there is an index is a very clear kind of quantification of what the average is. Um, yes, you, you, you can conceive it 
of it, obviously, as being like a risk reward trade off, as you would in any, you know, if you're just like an entrepreneur of any kind, if you're doing any kind of business activity where there is some uncertainty. But the payoffs are massively skewed in asset management because if you do well, you get paid a tiny bit more. But if you do badly, you get fired and like your entire business is over. So I think it's really important to understand that that is in the background of this. Where ESG comes in, not to completely discredit the political angle, um, but I, I pretty much think that most people like honestly don't care. Yeah, they're not actively bad. You know, they're not like lying through their teeth. They, they, it has like just enough not even truth to it, but kind of relatability. And I think even that actually goes back to how vague all the language is, right? It's not that the clearly political outcomes are, you know, that's that's what they wanted all along and this was all a conspiracy to get there. It's more that there's very little to object to in the language that's used up front, hence the example that you gave, right? Like anybody can change their language to be ESG friendly. Correct. And it doesn't make any difference to, to what they're actually doing. Um, but... I think that the the ultimate effect for them is that it's really about compliance. This creates an additional compliance burden that for large incumbents is highly attractive because it's a fixed cost on a, you know, a per company say basis that is effectively being there as far as I'm aware there's not really any like strict regulation about this but it's being almost bootstrapped into a norm across the entire global industry that just gives incumbents an advantage because it's a cost that they can bear and that smaller competitors can't. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, honestly. It's, it's incredibly boring by comparison. It's just that they want... It's, it's a form of organically bootstrapped regulatory capture that nobody actually cares what they're saying, really. Um, or at least nobody making the decisions to include this kind of language. And the evidence is exactly as you say, right, that they then don't change anything. What they do like is that they alone can afford the compliance costs. Mm -hmm. That's my theory on this. Yeah. I mean, look, it's directionally correct, right, in the sense of we definitely know that people are changing the language. We know that it leads to all this compliance. We know that it boxes mm. some people out. And we know that uh, the same people who are changing the language on their website still get on their private jet. They don't <laughs> yeah. really advocate for building nuclear power plants. Like all these things that we know would actually have an impact, it feels mm. like it's much more virtue signaling than it is impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's there's an obvious frustration. I think actually the reason that I'm I I have any desire to even say this at all, right? Because it's kind of like a controversial thing to come out with, um, is to reassure people to not well, not to reassure, mainly to to warn to start with, but then reassure if they make this decision, to warn people not to bang their heads against the wall in terms of this language. Because it's completely straightforward to make the argument that, like, for example, Bitcoin is the most ESG investment in history ever, like across all three categories. You could do this quite straightforwardly if you took the meanings of the words seriously. But the problem is that the people you're arguing with don't. So... I just wouldn't waste time on it, to be honest. And I think this is where Kathy Wood, uh, at one point she was on a, uh, uh, a panel and it was like her, Jack Dorsey, and I forget the other folks that were on there, maybe Elon Musk and, and maybe one other. Um, and she walked through it. She said, you know, what is mm. E, environmental, yeah. right? Like yeah. she literally went ESG and, and explained it. And I think that people uh, uh, don't think that much. One of my big theories uh, on society today across geographies is that we have a critical thinking crisis which is just that people basically, uh, they hear something, they immediately say, oh, I heard that, of course it's true, and they just run with it. And people don't stop and think. Hmm. And by the way, you may stop, think, and still arrive at the same conclusion, or you may stop, <laughs> think, and arrive at a different conclusion, but this uh, kind of uh, intellectual laziness that, frankly, we've probably been trained because we stare at computers all day that mm. have all these notifications and bells and whistles and uh, feeds and, and just constantly are hitting us with dopamine, it incentivizes us to go faster, go faster, go faster, stay on the hamster yeah. wheel mentally. And so you don't stop and think. And I think that that kind of critical thinking crisis ends up actually putting people in a really bad situation because when there are topics like this where you're like, wait a minute, yes, you can be pro ESG and pro Bitcoin because actually Bitcoin is ESG friendly that like blows mm. people's minds. They, my my favorite lost. example of this, I mean, obviously there's been a lot about 
Bitcoin specifically lately, and you know, obviously you're going to want to ask me about it, but there was one from maybe like two or three weeks ago. You might be able to find this tweet, actually. Uh, it was something, uh, as Mark Andreessen tweeted, and then I think it got even bigger because Musk replied. And it was something along the lines of, I think he screenshot some, like, was it like a fun document or something? It's probably exactly the kind of thing you were talking about where, you know, these people are like fixing their ESG language. But he was <laughs> he was pointing out something. It, it was like th- this ESG fund um, had changed its, uh, you know, its, its like parameters, its ESG parameters like on the spot to now include defense companies, which had previously been excluded because, you know, they're bad, guns are bad, right? But now guns are good because now guns are going to the good guys to fight the bad guys, but also they weren't going to change, they weren't going to put any oil into ESG good because I'm, I'm butchering this, obviously, Andreessen's tweet, I don't know if you've managed to find it, but um, it's a lot more succinct, but it's just sort of characterizing the, like, obvious it's not even contradiction it's just like incoherence like there's there's blatantly no attempt to even have this make any sense or be consistent it's just whatever is the the virtue signal of the day that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna tweak it yeah Um, and now it's obviously kind of spiraling into uh into bitcoin i mean it's been present in bitcoin for a while but there was another i don't know why (laughs) these two seem to really enjoy tweeting at each other but there was one from only a few days ago this time between Musk and Andreessen, which originated with the classic clothes dryer comparison, yep. right? Um, so yeah, so now it's, it's uh, well, it's, it, it has it, come to Bitcoin. Re- refrigeration, right, is the one yeah, I was going yeah, to. Yeah. Like nobody's advocating that we should stop using refrigeration for food, right? But guess what? It consumes a lot of energy, right? Yeah. And guess the entire society globally has decided that that is a good use of energy. I, so I don't like that as a comparison, though. I I really like the, the clothes dryer one specifically. Okay, why? Because there is an alternative that is exactly the same and uses no energy, which is you hang up your clothes. We don't do that because it's annoying. So it, it's the perfect example to compare to Bitcoin. So on the one hand, because it consumes, what is, I forget the figures, like 10 or 20 or something times more energy globally than Bitcoin mining does. But also, it is like indisputably pointless other than, I, I want to make it clear that I'm not actually advocating against clothes dryers, but it's just, it's so straightforwardly and transparently about the subjective value of the, of what would you even call it? Like the user's own time and, um, I've, yeah, time. You may as well just leave it at that because ultimately that's what it comes down to, right? It takes longer to, to dry them. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody everywhere is perfectly happy with utilizing energy and paying for it, obviously, to speed up that process. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like, and that's why I think it's such a good comparison to Bitcoin mining specifically because Bitcoin mining enables something that there is no other way to achieve, right? Whereas with this, there's an entirely straightforward way to achieve it, which is basically that you just do nothing. You just don't do the thing. You get the same outcome, and it just takes... So I, I prefer that as a comparison. Uh, what was it you mentioned a minute ago? Refrigeration? That's more obviously useful. I don't <laughs> want to give up my fridge. I actually don't... For example, this I'm not saying this to virtue single. I'm just saying it because it's kind of funny. I don't have a clothes dryer. I have a drying rack. I'm fine with that, but I would not be fine giving up my fridge. Yeah. That, do you do it intentionally so that you can say uh, as no, part of the I ESG No, I and they don't have a, Oh, I should say that, though. Yeah, I should say I'm doing it for ESG purposes. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing it because in the other room, I'm mining Bitcoin. So I'm, like, balancing my own, uh, my own energy budget, which, you know, is surely coming in the near future. Of course, of course. Um, if we think about kind of institutions in general, what's your experience or, or kind of thoughts and in, uh, institutions actually starting to adopt Bitcoin? Obviously, mm. we've seen uh, public companies buying Bitcoin. We've seen a number of asset managers come out and say, hey, maybe we're not going to buy Bitcoin directly uh, or invest in something like a GBTC with indirect exposure, but we'll help our clients. So like yeah. build products yeah, yeah. and services that drive revenue for the business. H- how do you see them all kind of playing in this space? I am quite, uh, I guess conservative is maybe the best word around this. Um, I used to be extremely excited because I think the economic logic is like entirely straightforward. I think any Bitcoiner would tell you that. I mean, even being a Bitcoiner in the first place, if you describe yourself that way, probably part of of that is, you know, 
a view on what one's you know portfolio ought to be, right? So I used to be a lot more excited um, about you know assuming that as soon as there's a kind of a critical mass with um, in in the thinking in in institutions that this would just happen naturally. The thing that I've realized in the past few years, though, is the incredible uh, hurdles around not just regulation, but I think infrastructure is probably the most important one. And it's made me appreciate a lot more, actually, what um, a whole bunch of companies that you hear about every now and then, but never, basically because they only cater to institutions in the first place, don't really get as much fanfare as a lot of others. So I think like NIDIG is probably the, the best example here. I think what they're doing, which is basically entirely in the background, like we don't really hear much about them besides, you know, occasionally like Ross Stevens will do an interview and everyone will lose their minds or like write a shareholder letter or something. But what they're doing in the background is so incredibly useful, basically because for an institution to take a holding in anything at all, um, it it requires significantly more, almost from the point, from the perspective of an individual who's done the same thing, unimaginably more red tape yep. to actually get that over the line. Not just in terms of like everybody's made the decision and they're happy with it, but how practically do you do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is even more complicated in, in the case of Bitcoin as opposed to just I don't know, any other kind of asset class, I suppose, because there's entirely novel technical questions around, you know, what it even means for a, an institution or for anybody, but, you know, obviously institutions may be more important to quote unquote hold Bitcoin. Like how does the equivalent, I was going to say how does custody work, but it's not even, it isn't really custody. It's like, how do you, how do you have a proxy for custody that is legally satisfactory? I mean, this is like, this is kind of boring. I don't want to go on about this for too long, but the, the point being that I'm now a lot less, I think it will happen eventually. I'm a lot less excited about it being kind of imminent because I remember there was maybe, I would probably everybody had a slightly different experience of this, but for me it was maybe two years ago or so when there was a rush of, oh, you know, the institutions are coming and I kind of bought into that on basically only on the um, on the economic reasoning, not on the well, infrastructure it, side. Technically, the institutions did come. They just didn't come in the uh, aggregate number of them that I think well, people I think, I think uh, the, were expecting. The way, the way to view what has actually happened with institutions is that so far it has been predominantly institutions that are, they're kind of like quasi-individuals. Like there is an individual with so much power, sounds a bit nefarious, but like influence, let's say, at that institution that they can just force it over the line and they can absorb the cost. So classic is like Sailor, classic example of this, uh, Abby Johnson at Fidelity, Kathy Wood at ARC. There's not that many more people in this, like in that position at all, mm-hmm. never mind to, you know, actually buy into Bitcoin in the first place. So, I mean, I think it will happen. I'm just kind of, I'm a lot more reserved about, you know, expecting it any minute. Yeah. This brings me to the last thing I want to talk about, which is this idea of like a divergence in thought. And so I'll use two frameworks. Uh, They're overgeneralizations uh, intentionally uh, to kind of highlight uh, the differences. But one is what I'll consider more of like an old school 60-40 portfolio, Keynesian economics, (laughs) right? Uh, Diversification protects you. Like all these things that I think um, uh, if you went and you sat uh, in – any sort of educational environment over the last 50 years, you got that old school kind of economic, Mm. personal finance uh, um, education. Then there's this new school idea, which is much more Austrian concentration, uh, less about like, hey, there's a bunch of solutions. Like, no, there's only one solution. Mm. Um, How do you work through that as like one lens between what I'll just label as like old school and new schools of thought, whether it's around economics or even just like mm. personal finance and, and yeah. your relationship with assets. I think it's it's probably quite a natural uh, outcome, I guess, of, of demographics and and relative differences in circumstances of of the demographics that matter at those stages in their life. I think it's, it's probably an, like an incredibly complex problem if you actually dug into it. But I, I would pick out two factors though. So one is that 
young, I'll just say younger and older. I don't think the actual, you know, like yep. the specific cutoff matters all that much, but younger people are by virtue, partly of exposure to the web when they were kids, uh, but now certainly with smartphones are far more used to just things being digital probably in particular financial things being digital. So like doing your banking on your phone and doing your payments on your phone, that's an enormous mental hurdle to get over, I think, in terms of the jump to then, you know, having Bitcoin on your phone, for example, or like doing a lightning payment or something like that. For me and for, actually, I'm not a good example because, you know, I'm a Bitcoiner, but for my non-Bitcoiner friends who are my age, who've had like roughly the same life experiences as me, I don't think that's, I don't think paying with lightning on your phone is really that big a leap for them at all in a way that it would be incomprehensible to some, well, I shouldn't say not like everybody, I don't want to be overly deterministic about it, but it would have been completely incomprehensible 20 years ago. There's a lot of people now for whom it is completely incomprehensible. So I think that's one, it's just affinity with things and in particular financial things being digital. When you think about this idea of then taking it and evolving it to not just old school, new school, but like internet versus classroom, it, it mm, feels like that's mm. another framework that you could analyze it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a great one. I think that's probably less relevant demographically. There probably is a strong demographic component there, but I think I think if anything, that probably comes more down to personality in a sense. Like I think the internet, this is like not remotely original as an insight, but I think the internet has provided an opportunity for people who are either genuinely really curious or, as is maybe more relevant to Bitcoin actually, are suspicious of, you know, the mainstream, in quotes. Um, It has provided those people an opportunity to seek out a far wider range of of information, ideas, communities, I think is maybe even the most important one, of communities that have formed around alternative heterodox ideas um, that, yeah, they would never have been exposed to otherwise. And I mean, I think it's like, it's kind of a classic talking point in, in certainly on Bitcoin Twitter. I mean, there's, there's a relatively small group that it applies to, but I'm sure everybody's heard it where, you know, you're, you either studied, um, you studied economics at undergrad or you worked in finance and some, some part of finance uh, or both potentially. And it was only when you discovered Bitcoin that you also discovered right back to what we started off talking about, right? Not even necessarily Austrianism, but literally anything at all other than what I would call mainstream, most of which is Keynesian economics. Um, I don't see how you can possibly put that down to anything other than the internet. I don't think that's even a Bitcoin thing. That's obviously Bitcoin helps in like being a, a kind of a, a, a point of attraction for people who have that interest in the first place. But it's very much, you know, the internet creating the opportunity for those communities to organically come into existence in the first place. I think that not only does the internet provide access to information you don't get in the classroom, right? So that's obviously kind of a, a easy one. Um, there's also the community. And this yeah. like this yeah. like reinforcement uh, of like uh, you have self learning, then you test ideas, you get feedback, you do self learning, mm-hmm. you test ideas, you get feedback, and I think school tries to do that, but like there's a balance in school. I think a lot about um, you know school is half learning, half like social control, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Like like imagine yeah, you know yeah. I always think of like imagine if you're a third grade teacher. Half your job is literally like everyone chill out, yeah. right? Like everyone stay in your seat, everyone shut the hell yeah. up, right? Like, like it's well, just a lot of people who don't want to be there. I correct. think that's a really important correct. difference, right? Correct. And and third grade's obviously different than when yeah, you, you're, you're really older, right? Probably but, but, no one wants to be. But, there. Yeah, yeah. But but I do think there's this element of uh, the environment, the uh, the thing that is being asked of the teachers near impossible, right? Mm. Hey, take I don't I don't know how old you are in third grade, but maybe you're uh, <laughs> you're what you're probably like. 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range, right? Whatever the age is, or no, uh, third okay, grade uh, is, is like younger, eight, eight right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so if you're in third grade, you're eight years old and you're around 25 other eight-year-olds, like game on, right? Like, <laughs> and, and your parents aren't there, right? Like, <laughs> like sure, the teacher is like a authority figure, but like, really, you know? Mm. And so you get in this weird environment and that I actually think gets extrapolated out till when you're in high school. And sure, maybe there's a greater degree of respect. You're dealing with somebody who's a little bit more mature or whatever, but like 
it's still not, I want to be here. I'm here because I want to learn. Mm. And if the teacher wasn't here, I still would learn. Yeah. When you get yeah. to the internet, the people who are quote unquote learning, they're the ones who I think are, uh, are there because they want to be, and they're yeah. able to extract quite a bit of information. I think there's another, there's an interesting kind of symmetry there, another difference. So not only does everybody want to be there, but you, nobody can be stopped from being there either. And neither of those are the case in, you know, traditional classroom education. It's yeah. a very important difference. Yeah. Um, when you just look out 10, 15 years, like what, is there one or two milestones that you're super excited about on the, uh, on the Bitcoin front where you're like, man, you know, this is the thing that, uh, when that's, this happens, that's a great question. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll think that it's, uh, it's game on. There's, there's some kind of fairly obvious ones. I want to not be boring about, I mean, like more legal tender law. Actually, that's kind of tricky. I don't mean to go off on too much of a tangent. I don't really approve of the legal tender laws, okay, but, but some fluffier, like, you know, legal recognition would be nice. Um, do you want me to go into that? Or yeah, do I, it. So I, I dislike legal tender just in general, nothing to do with Bitcoin because it's, it implies, um, sort of knowing better than the market. It's, it's enforcement of um, a means of exchange that you have to assume probably wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, what, what I would prefer, and this obviously, again, this is beyond just Bitcoin, but the, the, how it applies to Bitcoin is fairly obvious, is that there, I, I get that there, I wouldn't even say there needs to be, I don't want to sound too statist about it, but it is helpful for it to be recognized that um, there are certain monies with which debts will be recognized and accounts will be done and taxes will be paid. But rather than, I think legal tender almost starts with that kind of sort of practical truism that it's just, you know, I'm not even saying it's good, I'm just saying it's helpful and extends it to like, okay, well then we will dictate exactly how all of these things will work. I think what would be a lot more helpful would be a, a list, I suppose, of currencies with which you can do these things if you want to, not that you have to. So I think that's probably the major hang up I have with actual legal tender laws, because frankly, there's a lot of people who just don't care about Bitcoin and they're, they have every right to not care about Bitcoin. I, I'm not at all comfortable with forcing them to use it. I want it to win on its own, basically. Um, I want it to win on its own merits, not because a government is telling people they have to use it. So my preference would be far softer, which is that you can use this for clearing debts and doing your accounts and paying your taxes, uh, but not that you have to. So that's my that's my little yeah. legal tender. So, so basically, like once it's named legal tender, you you have to accept it. Yeah. And so rather than do that, which I just don't think should be the case for anything. Never mind yeah. for Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 Um, um, I can go back to your question though now because okay, exactly. all I was saying about legal tender was I, I didn't want to you know have the boring answer of like oh it's legal tender in the US. Um, I think something well this is maybe this is something that we didn't uh, we didn't touch on um, probably won't go into that much detail on it just now but my connection to Blockstream I would really I mean obviously just in general I would like for them to succeed but I think an obvious indication of what success for them would mean is that liquid becomes common, if not ubiquitous, as infrastructure for securities. And actually, I should backtrack on that a little bit so I can be more of like a Bitcoiner rather than a, like a, a Blockstream shill. Um, any sidechain technology, it doesn't necessarily, obviously, my, through my connection to Blockstream, I would be thrilled if it's, um, if it is liquid that, that ends up in that position. Um, but let's say Bitcoin native scaling layers end up having that, you know, fulfilling that role in securities markets. I think that would be, um, that would be very good in and of itself. I also kind of like it because it's sort of like a niche answer that uh, probably wouldn't occur to, to most people. Yeah. It, it's very nuanced, right? But, but I think, uh, one of the key pieces to all of this is, uh, it feels like Bitcoin is winning. Yeah, but there is no guarantee <laughs> of future success. That's what I keep mm. in my mind. Is like if you evaluate Bitcoin's progress in the last 13 and a half years to nearly a trillion dollar asset, Bitcoin is quote unquote winning. Mm. 
But if you evaluate from here to where I think most people believe it will go, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. And there's no guarantee. Yeah. And so it's like you you can be uh, positively viewing the past while also having this like uh, um, almost uh, uh, worried view of the future, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I have quite a, I think a controversial take, or certainly I don't imagine this will be a very popular take on this, which is that I actually... I'll be careful how I word this exactly. I don't want to say I don't care about Bitcoin. That's obviously not true. I, I don't, looking forward, I see Bitcoin as far more of a hedge than anything else. Okay. Explain. So I, I think that Bitcoin's continued success increasingly becomes dependent on the failure of other institutions. And I think that there are, there are a lot of ways that that failure can go that will be extremely unpleasant. And so I, I feel weirdly conflicted on this because, you know, I'm not like, I, I'm not in favor of uh, suffering and, and you know, uh, institutions collapsing. But if that's going to happen anyway, then I'm extraordinarily grateful for having Bitcoin as a life raft. Probably all of that sounds quite dark and like not really appropriate for, you know, oh, Bitcoin Miami, we're here to celebrate. Um, but I, I can't I can't really kind of argue my way out of that position. I think it's I I think it maybe there's something really interesting that um I haven't heard this in quite a while, but I remember uh Safe saying uh he, he might have said it more recently, but I, I remember hearing him say it a couple of years ago, I think, that actually the at this point the biggest threat or at that point the biggest threat to Bitcoin is that uh, governments roll back fiat and go on a gold standard or, or have some, it doesn't need to be that specifically, but you know, actually take the idea of sound money seriously. I think that's, a, that, that's very similar, that's very related to what I'm saying in that it's, it's more, it's kind of the opposite side of the same coin, I guess, in that I see the opportunity coming prime, not exclusively, but... There are obviously lots of areas to be excited about where it does. I mean, like Liquid, for example. Um, probably more obvious ones would just be like what Lightning does for payments, what mining does for energy. There are areas where it um, it brings new technological capabilities that aren't necessarily directly dependent on the price, um, but they are dependent on the price not going to zero, right? So... Ultimately, I do think that it succeeds as alternatives fail in the very long run. That's that's what will drive its success. Yeah. If we bring this back to uh, uh, your book in conclusion, uh, it feels like the errors of modern economic theory uh, drive so much of this because that is where investment mm -hmm. comes from. That is where the currency value comes from. That is ultimately the incentives in a society. And so if we can understand the errors of uh, many of the theories that are being played out today and even in the, the recent past, uh, and we can start to correct that, uh, it goes back to, you know, fix the money, fix the world. Yeah. It feels yeah. like that is the- Which uh, is the final line in the book. <laughs> I'll have is you know. it? Okay. It's actually, I, I really like that as a way of framing the book though, because I was saying to you just before we started recording that having Bitcoin in the title is like kind of clickbait. Um, it, there are very long passages about Bitcoin, so I don't want to scare people off. There, there's, you know, considerable new content there about about Bitcoin, which I, I'm quite excited by. Um, and touched on a little bit now too. So the the whole, um, I actually basically just characterized the whole of chapter seven, I think, uh, the likely effect of Bitcoin on um, capital markets in the case of liquid, payments in the case of lightning, and then energy in the case of mining. Um, but the, the way that we tried to write the book was we were quite self-conscious about it, not just being like an advert for Bitcoin. It's more like, and, and actually I think part of the reason here is that, well, time will tell if this actually is, ends up being remotely true, but I think that this is primarily a book for people who are not, or not yet, but are pre-coiners, right? So it's, I, I would like to think it would be more appealing to pre-coiners than to Bitcoiners. I don't think Bitcoiners will learn all that much from it is basically the reason. And the, the way that we're trying to appeal to pre-coiners is not so much, oh, here's why Bitcoin is amazing. It's more, here's why 
contemporary finance, contemporary economics is horrible. And framing that in terms of things that they very much can relate to, like cultural values and intellectual sort of methodologies. And then much, much later in the book saying, oh, by the way, if you take that seriously, which you, you know, we would argue you should, and, and to a large extent, you probably do, even if you don't realize it, what pops out of that is, oh, by the way, Bitcoin ticks all these boxes, like perfectly. Um, yeah. It, it, it does feel like the way we communicate with the pre-corners is important as well. Mm. Like the, yeah. the language yeah. used, the, the way the ideas are presented, uh, it is uh, important because you need people to have a certain type of mentality. You have to get out of the old school thought. You have to have an open mind. You yeah. have to really think that uh, some of this is possible in order to, to really understand what the, uh, the potential is. Yeah. Yeah, that was the um, that was kind of the basis of my talk at last year's conference, actually, because I, I was thinking about that a lot in the lead up, just to not even to me giving the talk necessarily, but to the conference. It's just kind of coincidence that it, it was on my mind that I, I was beginning to become a bit wary of um, the idea that most of what pre coiners were presented with was a combination of like quite complicated financial concepts and quite complicated technological concepts. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those. I mean, they're obviously all correct anyway, but they're, I, I worry they're maybe a bit intimidating, right? Like if you, if you didn't, if you weren't already aware of these problems, you know, just having all of this material laid on you is like maybe would just scare you away. And so what I ended up focusing on, what my talk was basically about was um, trying to make the case from the starting point of literature, of mm -hmm. classic literature in the way. I don't want to like re-give the whole talk now, but I, I, if anything, I was just kind of pleased with myself that I even like that turned out to be a coherent topic to have a, a talk about. But I, th and I think there's, you know, that, that links to what we, or what I mentioned about how we wrote the book. We didn't obviously like literature wasn't the starting point, but it was a bit more holistic than that kind of culture. It really very much is actually, now that I'm sort of thinking all of this out loud, it's very much a book about, culture um and the 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 conclusion is um that bitcoin fits it nicely as as opposed to and this was kind of the point i was getting at with the talk too as opposed to oh this is just scary and new like there's never been anything like this before true in some respects but i think more importantly not at all true in some other respects it in my view ties you know partly via whether your starting point, if you want that to be literature or culture or, or the kind of values from which sensible economics emerges in the first place, this should feel familiar. Or it, it, I think maybe the more important point, and, and actually back to your question about how we communicate, it can be made to feel familiar. And so to whatever extent it can, it, it, you know, we should. Yeah. Where can we send people to find the book? Uh, so it's on the Bitcoin Magazine website. If you want to pay in Bitcoin, which might be fun, some people might want to do that. Uh, it is also on Amazon. Uh, if any of the listeners are coming to the conference this week, uh, Bitcoin Magazine are going to be pumping physical copies there. Uh, <laughs> and we're doing a signing. So me and Sasha, co-author, will be uh, doing book signing. I believe it is uh, Friday at 12. Awesome. And then where can people find you on the internet? Uh Probably just Twitter. I mean, I have presences in various other places, but it's obviously used Twitter to coordinate it. So it's at Alan is A-L-L-E-N-F-3-2. 3-2, what's 32 for? Uh, the, the fact that I joined Twitter in February 2019 and all the good handles were taken. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually, I like the number 32. So um, no one's ever asked me this before. I've actually, I've kind of, I've wanted someone to bring this up at some point so I can then say that, when I was a kid, well, it's still now, I suppose, but I supported both uh, the soccer team Inter Milan and the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, my favorite players were Christian Vieri for Inter Milan and Edron James for the Colts, and they were both number 32. So I've had this in the back of my mind for a while. That, like I, I like dripping 32 into things. And when I tried, you know, Alan, nope, Alan F, nope, Alan Farrington, nope. Alan F1, no, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, ah, oh, shit, well, 32 might work. So <laughs> that is where that came from. <laughs> I love to hear how people come up with the usernames. Awesome, man. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I think no, people thank you for really, having me. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. If anyone hasn't gone to get the book, highly recommend it, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Thanks very much.
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.